get started. Um, I'm excited to be with all of you and really appreciate you taking the time. I know there's a lot of options to do learning um, online. We have three, um, three subjects that we're going to cover in this series on three Monday nights. Um, tonight is going to be about Mourner's Kaddish, and next week is going to be about the prayer we say in the Amida called Rifa'inu, where we ask God to heal us. Um, and the last is going to be about spontaneous prayer, personal prayer, um, and how that fits into um, the Jewish prayer structure. So we're going to have um, some opportunities, hopefully, which will uh, impact on your own prayer experience in this very difficult time. I just wanted to preface tonight's topic uh, with two words of introduction. One is to say that I know a lot of people, some of you have written to me and some of you just over the weeks, I've heard um, this is a very personal experience around saying Kaddish, the struggles about saying Kaddish, and I want to sort of just express my, my love and uh, connection to everybody who is struggling with this in a very personal way. Um, and however anybody is dealing with it is, you know, is going to work for me and for you, and that's uh, nothing that I teach here is meant to judge anything that anyone is doing in terms of their own personal practice with Kaddish. And just to say that it's, it's really hard for everybody who's in the state of mourning. Um, I also wanted to note that as we head into an uh, American time and already in Israel time, Yom Hazikaron, um, it's appropriate to focus on a prayer that honors, uh, as we'll see, the memory of the dead. Um, and just to note that last year at Yom Hazikaron, I was in Israel with my family, very different to experience it from America. Some of you may be tuning in from other countries, um, but just to say that uh, I hope that some of the learning that we do tonight will also be in memory of those who uh, we are remembering, remembering tonight on Yom Hazikaron. Um, so uh, we're going to start off with the poll that Morty's going to um, get out, get uh, going for us, which is basically the following question. Since the current um, virus crisis began, my prayer life has either gotten better, gotten worse, or stayed the same. So you can answer the, the poll as it appears. We'll see where we, where we land as a collective on this. Okay, with most of the <coughs> polling stations uh, in, I would say it looks like gotten better, barely eking out a uh, plurality, um, about 40%, gotten worse, about a third, and stayed the same, also a little bit about a third. So we have a wide, um, wide range of experience here, um, and uh, maybe we'll understand a little bit more about how everybody's prayer life is changing, or at least two-thirds of you's prayer life is changing uh, in this crisis, either for better or for worse, um, both tonight and throughout this, um, throughout this lecture. So thank you for jumping in on the poll. Okay, we're going to look at the Kaddish, uh, and I'm going to say a few words introduction around the history of the Kaddish, just before we look at actually the foundational story that stands behind when the Kaddish became a prayer for mourners, the mourners' Kaddish. Um, in, in, in many ways, actually, the Kaddish might be one of the oldest prayers that exists in Jewish life. There is a theory that the Kaddish preceded um, the Lord's Prayer, which is mentioned in Matthew and actually was a source for the Lord's Prayer. Some of the terminology is common to both of those prayers. There's a whole book that's written about it, the Kaddish and the Lord's Prayer. So it might be that the Kaddish is one of the oldest prayers that we have. Um, but it seems like scholarly consensus on the Kaddish is that it was a prayer that was recited after study and probably in the context of the Beit Midrash, which may explain why it's largely in Aramaic. Um, 
And because it's not the street Aramaic, often you hear this is what Jews understood, it's the vernacular, but the truth is the Aramaic of the Kaddish is more the highfalutin Aramaic of the Beit Midrash. And it seems like the way it was used originally is kind of the way we use it in um, the sort of uh, the Torah service, which is to say, following a period of study, think about the reading of the Torah as study, following the period of study, you say the Kaddish. And we'll see that it is in fact a plea, a request um, to live in a world that we don't live in now, but to live in a, a different and changed world. Um, what happened in the Middle Ages, and this is very foggy in terms of the history, but we know that mourners reciting this prayer does not take place until, let's say, maybe up to a thousand years after the Kaddish launches as a prayer. Um, so whereas the Kaddish does appear in the Talmud in a number of places, it's not called the Kaddish, it's called Yehei Rabbah, which is its uh, refrain, but um, the, the word Kaddish as a title is something that's post-Talmudic. Um, but from all those references in the Talmud, it doesn't seem like it became a mourner's prayer until the Middle Ages. And we're going to actually look at the story that pinpoints the moment in which this prayer, which was reserved originally as a capstone for study, became a prayer that mourners are meant to recite. Um, and as we'll see, the story is um, a little bit strange. It has sort of the, the makings of a medieval Jewish story and has some unsavory characters, but we're going to, uh, to see how that, that might enrich our understanding of what is the essence of the Kaddish and how today, in a world in which we can't gather in Minyanim, how might we relate to this prayer on a sort of theme basis, even if we're not able to recite it in person with a minion. So when I brought in the source sheet, I printed just to have as reference the full Kaddish, which actually has within it three Kaddishes, the full Kaddish, which is the whole entirety of what I brought you. The half Kaddish is one, paragraphs one, two, three, four, um, which you see right here. And the mourner's Kaddish is uh, actually one, two, three, four, six, and seven. Paragraph five, Tikkabel Tzlodhon, is something that's only said in the full Kaddish and actually is related to the Amida. That's a paragraph that asks God to accept our prayers, but technically to accept our Amida. And so you only say that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between a full Kaddish and an Amida. You say it only once, once and only once when you say an Amida. And so the mourner's Kaddish, which is not meant to wrap up the Amida, is the full Kaddish minus paragraph five. And that's just the technical term of what the Kaddish is. But presumably the, the main parts of the Kaddish, which you're going to see referred to in the story, are the first line, Yidgadal Yidgadash Shemei Rabbah, uh, translated a little bit um, uh, vaguely here as exalted and sanctified be his great name. Or you might translate that as may his great name be exalted and sanctified. And paragraph two, Yehei Shemei Rabbah Mevarach may his great name be blessed forever and all eternity. So both Yidgadal Yidgadash and Yehei Shemei are the ways in which the Kaddish is going to be referred to in our story. Uh, the story is brought in uh, a medieval halachic work um, called the Or Zarua, Rabbi uh, Yitzchak of Vienna, uh, and he's reporting on a series of different customs that surround the Kaddish as recited by a mourner, literally an orphan, and we're going to pick up with his story here. Okay, so I'm scrolling down to page two for those of you who are following along. It's our custom, I'm going to read the story in English, you can follow along in the, in the Hebrew. It's our custom in the land of Canaan, Be'eretz Canaan, 
which seems to be the um, Slavic lands, not exactly clear. It's not Canaan, um, the land of Israel, but somewhere in Europe. Um, and also the custom of the Rhineland that after the congregation says Ein Kelohenu, which was the, at least in, in some uh, Jewish rites, the last thing that you say in uh, morning prayers, after the congregation says Ein Kelohenu, an orphan stands and says Kaddish. But in France, I saw that they're not strict about who says Kaddish, an orphan or not. So apparently in France, a deviant, you know, from his perspective, custom in which someone says Kaddish doesn't have to be an orphan or probably not even a mourner. But our minhag makes sense, says the Or Zarua, given the following story. Now he's going to tell us a story that seems to harken back um, hundreds of years earlier to a story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is living in the second century. Okay, but this is a story that actually appears in about 75 different sources in Jewish uh, in the Jewish library. Um, there's actually a lot of scholarship on this story itself. This is the one, the first one that mentions Kaddish in the story. Okay, so let's read the story and see how Kaddish becomes a prayer for a mourner. Rabbi Akiva saw a person who was naked and black as coal. He was carrying on his head a bundle 10 times normal weight and was running like a horse. Rabbi Akiva commanded him to stop and said, why are you hard work? If you're a slave and your master is doing this to you, I'll redeem you from him. And if you are poor, I'll make you suffering, carrying this terrible load, running back and forth. And Rabbi Kiva wants to help him and says, if you're a slave, I'll make you free. If you're doing this because you're poor, I'll give you money. And what does the man reply? He said, please don't delay me. Perhaps those in charge of me will become angered. Okay, so we don't know, it's a mystery. Uh, he's not giving us any clue about what's going on. Rabbi Akiva said, what is this and what do you do? Like, what's going on? Tell me what's happening here. He said, I am dead. Every day they send me to cut down wood and they burn me with it. Okay, so this guy is suffering in a um, never ending hell where he himself uh, cuts down the wood in order to endure the suffering of burning on that wood. Okay, sounds medieval. Rabbi Akiva said, what was your work in the world that you came from, i.e. when you were alive? Like, what did you do to deserve such a punishment? Now, before you feel too bad for this guy, let's hear what he did when he was alive. He said, I was a tax collector and I was among the leaders of the people. I would favor the rich and send the poor to their death. Okay, I was a corrupt leader who led innocent people to die. In some versions of this story, this is a great rabbinic fantasy game of come up with the worst sin you can. Uh, in some versions of this story, he um, has sexual intercourse with an engaged woman on Yom Kippur. Okay, so you can sort of conjure up the worst set of sins that this guy is able to do. And that's the force of, uh, of the character that I'm trying to build here. He is a bad guy. Okay, and he is suffering as a result of his sins. Rabbi Akiva says to him, Rabbi Akiva doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't say, oh, I get it. You're suffering because you deserve it. Rebekiva still wants to help him, okay? So Rebekiva says to him, have you heard from those in charge of you if there is a repair? Is there anything that can be done for your situation, Rebekiva asks. The man said, he said, please don't delay me. Perhaps those in charge of me will become angered. Same answer, right? Maybe I'm going to get even worse. For I have no repair. There's nothing that can save me. However, however, 
I heard from them something which cannot be. If I had a son who were to stand in the congregation and say, blessed is Hashem who is blessed, and they would answer after him, blessed is God, the blessed forever and ever. Or if he said, Yitzgadal, and they answered after him, Yeheshmei Rabbah, may his great name be blessed, immediately they would release me from punishment. Okay, so apparently there is something that can help this man. And it turns out that if he has a son, and if the son leads the congregation in prayer, now that might be a blessing over Torah, as we'll see from another version of the story, probably is, that is to say, if the son can bless over an aliyah, uh, as opposed to the baruch that opens up shachar, if the son can bless over an aliyah, and if the son says, Yit Gadal, and everybody responds after him, Yeish Mei Rabbah, they would release me from my punishment. But now the man says, but this is why it's not going to work. Because I did not leave a son in this world. I left my wife pregnant, and I don't know if she gave birth to a son. And it would teach him anyway, for I don't have any friends in the world. Okay, nobody's going to help me. So this is never going never gonna to fly, Rabbi Akiva. What happens? In that moment, Rabbi Akiva took it upon himself to go and investigate if he had a son so that he could teach him Torah and stand him before the congregation. Those seem to be the two requirements that's going to alleviate the suffering, that Rabbi Akiva is going to teach Torah and that this, this child would stand before the congregation and lead them. Rabbi Akiva says to the man, what is your name? He said, this is the Twilight Zone moment, Akiva, okay? So this is a, a little bit of a, tw- a plot twist where Rabbi Akiva may be looking at himself in the mirror, sort of like Jacob wrestling with the angel, maybe himself. But okay, his name is Akiva, not a common name in medieval Germany. What is your name? Is, he said Akiva. And what's the name of your wife? It's not Rabbi's, uh, wife's name, whose name was Rachel. Shushniba. And the name of your city? Laodicea, which is apparently in, uh, in Turkey. So immediately Rabbi Akiva felt a great sorrow and went and asked after this person. So Rabbi Akiva goes to search out, he's got the clues and he's gonna go search out to find this child. When he came to that place, he asked after him. Where's the, where's the kid? They said, the bones of that wicked one should be silent. Talking about the, the dead man. It, I don't wanna have anything to do with him. He should, he should rot in hell. He asked after his wife. They said, may her memory be erased from the world. She was terrible too, they said. He asked after his son, did did she give birth? Did he have a son? They said, he is uncircumcised. Even the mitzvah of circumcision we didn't do, which is a striking admission on their part because the community is meant to circumcise a child who is an orphan, and they didn't take on that responsibility. Okay, so the child exists, but he has absolutely no connection to the Jewish people, and his community has spurned him. Immediately, Rabbi Akiva took him, circumcised him, and sat him before him. He didn't receive Torah until Rabbi Akiva fasted for 40 days, which might recall there's a lot of similarities between Rabbi Akiva and Moshe. Moshe also didn't eat and drink for 40 days when he received Torah. Here, Rabbi Akiva is fasting on behalf of being able to teach the Torah to this presumably unwilling student, uh, and he is... um, he is successful. A heavenly voice emerged and said, Rabbi Akiva, go and teach him. Okay, we're ready to do this now. What happens? Rabbi Akiva went and taught him Torah, Kriyat Shema, the Amida, 
and Birkat HaMazon. So Rabbi Kiva teaches him the basics of Jewish communal literacy, I would say. He stood in before the congregation and said, Baruchu et Adonai Amborach, and the congregation answered, Baruch Adonai Amborach le'olam va'ed, and he said, Yid Gadal, and they said, Yehei Shmei Rabbah. Okay, so exactly as the man prescribed, the child is able to do it. At that moment, they, that is to say the punishers of this man, immediately released him from punishment. He's no longer being punished. Immediately, the man came to Rabbi Akiva in a dream and said, May it be God's will that your mind be at ease in Gan Eden, for you saved me from the punishment of hell. Immediately, Rabbi Akiva said, Adonai, your name is forever. Your mention is from generation to generation. Okay, so this is the story, the very first time in, in Jewish literature that the Kaddish, an old prayer, becomes a, um, a prayer that is meant to be recited by a mourner. But, and I'm going to stop in a moment for, for thoughts and reactions and questions, uh, but I just want to point out what I think part of what's going on in this story to understand what is the role of Kaddish in this story. The role of Kaddish, as I see it, is not a magical formula prayer that it itself is doing something to help the deceased person. Rather, it is a prayer that actually is the capstone of a life that is lived in a certain manner, a life that reflects um, a sort of engagement with the Jewish canon and the Jewish way of life, that yes, this is sort of like the coming out party for that orphan when he gets to lead the congregation and they respond to him, having previously wanted to reject him and not even circumcise him. Okay, so he's playing some leadership role but it also reflects a certain set of behaviors that this child adopted. And note, the parent here is not your average parent. This is a parent who is really not a good person in any way, who lived his life in a terrible way. And the child is able to, in fact, behave differently to redeem himself. The child's uh, life is redeemed from um, sort of being cornered in by the life of his sinning father. He gets to reinvent himself through the teachings of Rabbi Akiva and the ability to commit to a life of Torah study and prayer. Okay, so part of what I'm claiming here is that if you're boiling down the Kaddish to its essence, an aspect of the Kaddish that might be one of the main parts of the Kaddish is that it is a capstone to a certain life that is lived that takes you out of a predetermined destiny of a lineage that was leading you down the wrong path, that gives you agency with the help of a teacher to turn your life around and in fact live out the values that we are hopeful um, you know, a Jew would live out. Okay, And as we'll see when we get to the question of what does it mean to say Kaddish without a minion, as we'll see, the opportunity to take Kaddish as a stand-in for how to live one's life, as opposed to a liturgical event that only takes place in the context of a minion, is part of what I'm drawing upon here to open up potential options um, for us as we consider Kaddish. So I'm going to open it up in a second. Morty's going to send me um, whatever, whatever questions have arisen or reactions. I also just wanted to say um, that the, um, 
there are a lot of possible um, uh, connections between, um, you know, the halachic question on the table right now and the material that we're studying tonight. My job is not to pass any halachic judgment. So you and your rabbinic-led uh, community might have decided that a Zoom minion does count for Kaddish. There was some very provocative chuvot on this, both from the conservative movement and from uh, um, one of the Orthodox rabbis in Israel. I put that in the source sheet at the end, so if you want to look at those. Um, but I am, I am not, I'm not trying to pass judgment on whether we can do an end run around Minyan in order to recite Kaddish. What I'm trying to say is that even if we're doing it on Zoom, it's not the same experience as having everybody's voice. And in that way, I'm trying to uncover some of the essentials of Kaddish that we could maybe take forward with us, even in a world where we can't recite the prayer itself. Okay, so some of the questions that are emerging, do we know anything about the relationship between this story and medieval Christian notions of purgatory? Yes, so there is um, some scholarly work that's done on that uh, professor at Northwestern, I'm uh, blanking on his name, who just published an article uh, a few years ago on the connections exactly there um, between just at the moment in medieval Christianity, when Christians are being uh, interested in the same kind of topic, Jews are also getting interested. And so there do seem to be some links there, although obviously the context here is, um, is, is Jewish. Right, so Janice is saying that, we thought this, the recitation of the Kaddish by mortars was codified in the Middle Ages, but the story of Rebbe Kiva takes place in the second century. That's true, although I would say most scholars and, and contemporary understandings of this story is, and we'll see, the story actually gets a little bit older, but the, but the Yit Gadal and Yeheshmei Rabbah, first time that ever plays a role in this story, is definitely in the Or Zaru, in this text itself. So even if it's a like true report of Rebbe Kiva from a thousand years earlier, um, that we don't necessarily have the Yit Gadal and Yehesh Rabbah appearing in other versions. And this is uh, you know, a question of what's the origin of the story? Where does the Orzara quoted from? So Orzara doesn't give his source, but we'll see that, um, that the story uh, does appear in earlier sources. David Brodsky is another uh, scholar, uh, claims that the, um, the first place this story appears is in one of the Mesachtot um, Ketanot, uh, in one of the minor tractates, which depending on how you date them, may be as early as the Amoraic, early Amoraic period, which would take us back about 700 years from uh, Isaac of Vienna. Um, and we're gonna look at that right now just to see um, what does it mean uh, for this story to exist in an earlier version and how could that have related to, um, to the Kaddish. Okay, now some of you asked, how old is the Midrash and where, where does Orzara quote it from? So this is an older version. Uh, uh, another scholar in Israel, um, Membet Lerner, uh, published an article a few years ago um, saying that he thought this was the oldest version. Scholarship is always debating which is the oldest version. He thought this is the oldest version. Brodsky thinks another version is the oldest version. But both of them have the following in common. Neither of them include Kaddish and really focus on the, the life that the person is living. Okay, so let's just see it right here. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. It's not Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, one time I was walking along the path. I met a person who was collecting wood. I said hello to him, but he didn't say hello to me. I said to him, are you among the living? He said, that man, that is to say me, I am among the dead. He said to him, if you're dead, why are you collecting wood? He said to me, listen to me about something. When I was in the world of the living, my friend and I would busy ourselves with robbery. Okay, so this is the sin in this version. We were robbers. Death by fire was decreed on me. When I gather the wood, they burn me. And when he gathers the wood, they burn him. 
Okay, so same, same punishment. I said, how long is your punishment? He said to me, Rabbi, when I came here, I left my wife pregnant. Now I don't know if she had a girl or a boy. Okay, and then the manuscript tears, and then he gives the solution. If you bring him to the synagogue and teach him the Amida and the Shema and three verses of the Torah, and he ascends and reads from the Sefer Torah, and the congregation answers after him, Baruch Adonai Barach I'll be released from judgment. Okay, so here are the, the, the categories that's going to release the punishment are prayer, Amida, Shema, accepting the yoke of heaven, and reading the Torah and study, sort of the basic, again, literacy of, you know, of what you might expect from a, a young Jew. Rabbi Yochanan did this, and then that does the trick, and the man says, let your soul rest, you've caused me and my soul to rest. So again, in the earlier versions of this story, Kaddish doesn't even play a role. Okay, Kaddish is not part of it. It's really about prayer and study. And that's what's going to um, uh, give a salve for the deceased, um, the deceased relative. So again, when we think about what is the essence of the Kaddish, what are we trying to hold on to in this moment when you look at the older versions of the story, the Kaddish doesn't even play that role. It's sort of like thrown in there among other prayers. I don't want to minimize the power of the Kaddish that people experience today, but I also don't want to overstate it as a zero-sum game on can you say this prayer word for word in a minion or nothing. I'm having no connection to the essence of the prayer. To me, it seems like the story in the Orzarua, the first story we looked at, is arguing for an essence to, of the prayer, which is how do we live our life and how are we connecting to the Jewish people more generally, as opposed to what is the prayer that I need to say in order to honor, um, to honor the dead. And this is something that, um, in terms of the, 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 how old is this concept? This concept, the concept of your life lived, is uh, salve for those who precede us um, is something that appears in other in other rabbinic sources that are much older. For instance, look at number four. Um, it's Torah Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, "Whoever has a son or a child, ben a son that toils in the Torah, kiilu lo It's as if he hasn't died, right? That is to say, there's something eternal about the connection of a, a parent-child relationship when the child is living the core principles of Torah study, okay? And I think that more than any other um, sort of strand is part of what this prayer is picking up on. That is to say, what is it about the life that I am living that sort of gives life, now whether that's metaphorically or literally in the Middle, in the Middle Ages story, it seems like you're literally giving life to the deceased by releasing them from the punishment. But here it's, it's as if, it's as if you have, not, you have not died. Something about carrying on the chain of tradition is going to give an eternal life to the parent who is sort of physically deceased. Okay, and that I think is part of my argument about what the Kaddish here um, what role it is playing. Okay, so I'm going to take any other um, questions that are, that are coming up. 
Yeah, in the Akiva version, it's the father that is released from punishment, even though it was the son who changed his life path. And this is a fascinating concept, which is to say, usually we think that a person is responsible for his own sins, or actually in the old biblical model, a child might be responsible for the, for the sins of the parents. Here we have the reverse, in which the child can actually release someone else from their sins. In other words, the guy didn't repent. He didn't say, I was a terrible person and I, you know, I really regret all the poor people that I sent to their debt. In some ways, um, uh, the child is doing that. And, in, and, and perhaps it's the, it's the legacy that is being lived out by the child that ultimately sort of is the salve for the, the, the father because the father was somebody who no one would have ever believed the community asked anyone in that community, no one ever believed that that child would be worth anything in terms of their, 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 their life and their practice. They gave up on the child, right? They didn't even circumcise him. But the child turns his life around with the help of Rabbi Akiva um, or Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and in that way actually redeems, redeems the father. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about why does the sto storyteller tell the story this way? We don't know what happens to the son. Does the son go on? Um, it's not exactly clear. Um, and, you know, in this way, I think I would say for all of us who have encountered the need to say Kaddish for a deceased loved one, you know, probably, I mean, this is a literary character that they're creating, it seems like, probably no one was ever that bad. Um, and so there is a world in which, well, what's the purpose of the Kaddish that we're saying if we're not trying to redeem someone who was a horrible, horrible person um, and, you know, needed that, um, that kind of salvation from, from burning hell? Um, so again, I think in the less extreme case, it's an opportunity for us to connect to the values of living a Jewish life that our parents would be, you know, proud of, as it were. And we're going to see that as a, a trope that appears later on in Jewish writings of actually the Kaddish, saying the Kaddish is important, but living out the values of your parents is even more important, okay? And so we, um, we have the opportunity to think about what is our behavior as a response to death, as opposed to what is our liturgical recitation. Again, I'm not taking away liturgical recitation. The story does turn on liturgical recitation, but it's in the context of a life that's changed and a per particular role in the community that one can still adopt, perhaps, even in this, uh, in this time. That is to say, we can behave in certain values-driven ways, even if we can't lead a community in prayer or even recite the words of Kaddish. Now, what I want to turn to is beyond this story, which again, I'm trying to essentialize what is Kaddish a stand-in for as a way of life that's uh, made up of behavior. I wanna look at some examples of what was done in the past in our history when certain Jews were not able to say Kaddish and what were they doing as substitute liturgical uh, events to take, to take them forward through that time. None of them, I should say, none of them is as drastic and radical as the age that we're living in here. And again, this is not where I'm not offering halacha guidance on whether you might want to do an end run around minion because it's just a world nobody could have ever imagined. But there are worlds in which people were not saying Kaddish and they did construct liturgical substitutes. And I think the substitutes that they constructed also teach us about the orientation that we might have in this moment, even if we're not able to say Kaddish um, with a minion as we're used to doing it. 
Okay, I'm on the bottom of page five, number six. Sefer Hasidim, which is part of Hasidei Ashkenaz. Hasidei Ashkenaz is a, um, known as the German pietists, um, who are living 12th, 13th century. And um, we have Sefer Hasidim is apparently written by Yudah Hasid, one of the founders of the movement. Um, and he gives a number of uh, many, many different uh, advices in this book, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them. And this is how he's talking about a situation in which one does not have a minion to say Kaddish. Now, to be, uh, I should say here that Kaddish for him is not the mourner's Kaddish. This probably, although maybe it's around the same time as Orzarua, probably a little bit earlier than Orzarua, um, it doesn't seem like he knows the mourner's Kaddish per se, but I think it's helpful to see what does he do as a substitute for this liturgical text in a moment where he can't say it in a minion or someone can't say it in a minion. Adam, a person, Shudar Bikfar, for a person lives in a village, and he doesn't have a minion. The person doesn't have a minion in which uh, the person can say anything that is required to say a minion, like, like, like the Kedusha, like the standing prayer that we say in the middle of the Amida. Or second, uh, tell me if this sounds familiar, second option, uh, he does live in a place where there's a minion, but he showed up to Sholeit Ad Asher Amru Kvar until they had already said the Kaddish, So what is he supposed to say instead? So here we get three verses from the Bible, which is meant to be a substitute for the Kaddish. And it's a little bit ironic that one is able to say verses from the Bible, which one would think is on a higher level than a prayer that's written after the Bible, but um, the way it, it, it falls out is that anyone's always able to say verses. You don't need a minion to say verses from the Bible. It's also sort of a cross between praying and studying. Anybody could do that however they want, um, but it's not the same as needing a minion. So here are the three verses that are suggested as substitutes for the Kaddish. First is, V'atayigdalna um, now, please let Hashem's power be great. Yigdalna, like Yigdal. Okay, so let it be great. Let God's power be great. Um, from the Midbar chapter 14. Um, a second verse from Ezekiel. V'hitgadilti, v'hitgadishti, v'noadeti le'enei goyim rabim, v'yadu ki ani Hashem. This is God speaking at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy of the end of days. At the end of days, God says, I will make myself great. I will make myself holy. Um, that's the only place in all of the Bible where those two words come together as a series. I will make myself great and I will make myself holy and I will be known among many nations and they will know that I am Hashem. And the last verse, which is sort of a substitute for Yehish Me Rabbah is, which we know from saying hallel so many times. Um, Psalm 113, may the name of Hashem be blessed forever and ever. Now, I just want to point out that it's striking here that, uh, so verse number one plays with Yigdal, Yigadal. Verse number two plays with Yigadal, Yigadash. And verse number three plays with Yehishmei Rabbah. Now, just note, Yehishmei Rabbah doesn't have God's name, whereas Yehishem Adonai Mivorach does have God's name. And one of the striking things, those of you who learned with me before about the Kaddish, one of the striking things about the Kaddish is that it doesn't mention God's name, 
which is extremely unusual in all of the Jewish liturgy. Every simple blessing mentions God's name. And here this prayer doesn't God's name. And just denote that the source quote that they draw upon does have God's name. So it even, it's even more striking, we'll see this as we develop a little bit further, that the fact that God's name is missing from the Kaddish is also a statement about the state of the world. That is to say, why it's appropriate to be a prayer for mourners is partly due to the fact that the Kaddish is recognizing that the world we live in is absent to some measure the presence of God. Now, this may also explain why it was said after a period of study, after a period, originally, after a period of study, here you are studying the words of God, and then you're noticing, and you're certainly living in rabbinic times, you're noticing that God is not, you know, living on earth the way God was when the temple stood, and we had a more intimate relationship with God. And so even though I'm studying those words from the living God, the presence of God is diminished, and I'm often here that the cottage doesn't mention the dead, and it's, it's sort of, you know, praising God, even though we're in our loss and grief. That's not my take. My take on the Kaddish is that it's not about praise. It's about noting the world that we live in with the absence of God's name. God's presence is missing. And it's a request, right? These verses, Yid Gadal Vid Kadash, is based on a verse where God says, may I be made great, may I be made holy, not I am great, I am holy. How will I know when I am made great and when I am made holy? Only when... Everybody comes to know me. That's the end of days, and we're just not there yet. You would know if we were there. So Yidkadal Yidkadash is a statement of request. I want God to be made great. I want God to be made holy, and I don't see it now. By the way, you know this, it's, it's sort of familiar to us. I'm scrolling down for a second to uh, probably the most familiar place where we have the, the words of Yidkadal Yidkadash from the... Uh, from the Kedusha, another prayer where you need a minion, from the Kedusha of the morning Amidah on Shabbat, um, in, some, in some versions of it. So I'm an 8D, where we're clearly asking God to do something, not praising God. We're saying, from your place our king appear and rule over us, like rule over us. You don't rule over us fully right now. Your presence isn't here. Rule over us because we are waiting for you. When will you rule in Zion? right? I want you to do this now, soon, and in our days. This is the version in Seder of Amram. And then we say, May you be made great. May you be made holy. Yitkadash is just the third person of that. May God, may he, may his name be made great. May his name be made holy. Here with direct address. May you be made great. May you be made holy in, in the midst of Jerusalem, your city, forever and ever. May our eyes see the coming of the kingdom of the Lord. Right? That's what we're asking for. So again, the Kaddish, like Kedusha, is a request. We're living in a world in which God does not fully exist in a present form that we can experience. That is why we are suffering in our loss. And that is why this prayer is appropriate to be said as a plea. Please bring us to the day in which you are made great and you are made holy. Um, 
So uh, I'm gonna introduce one of the texts here, um, and then I'm gonna invite your questions again. So there's another substitute text of what we say when we, don't, when we are not able to say um, the Kaddish, and this is brought by another one of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, I'm scrolling up to number seven, Sefer Rokeach, this is a student of Rabbi Yudah Hasid, um, and he gives the following, a different interpretation of what one might say when one cannot say the Kaddish. Yachid she'eno bebeit ha-kneset libarchu. Yomar bebrayta zo besifre. Okay, he's giving a whole bunch of things. If you need a minion for barchu, say this other text instead. And then he gets to our text, the Kaddish. Yehesh rabba. When you're not able to say Yeheshmei Rabbah, the old name of the Kaddish, the, the name as it goes by its refrain. So say the following text, Amar Rabbi Yossi, Pamachad Hayiti Ma'aleich Baderach. Say the, now you're not going to say a biblical quote, you're actually going to say a rabbinic text, okay? So if the first suggestion from Rabbi Yudah Hasid was, say these three biblical verses, which I'm arguing are meant to request something of God, just like the Kaddish, may you be made great, may you be made holy. Okay, here I'm actually going to tell a story. And it's this story that I want to look at with you as well um, to see what is the aspect of the Kaddish that we are trying to draw on in a world where we can't say the Kaddish. So we're going to look at this story itself. Uh, I'm down on page eight, source number 10. I'm Arbiosi. Abraita teaches, Arbiosi said, one time I was walking on the path and I entered a ruin from one of the ruins of Jerusalem in order to pray. Again, this is the text you're meant to say instead of Kaddish, if you don't have a minion, okay? One time I was walking on the path and I entered a ruin from one of the ruins of Jerusalem in order to, pr- to pray. Now, uh, pray, probably the Amida. That's Ali Palel means technically say the Amida. What happens? It's Rabbi Yossi. So Elijah, Elijah, blessed memory, came and watched the doorway until I finished my prayer. He said to me, Whenever the Israelites go into the synagogues and schoolhouses and say, Yeheshmei Hagadol Mivorach, or in some manuscripts, Yeheshmei Rabbah Mivorach, may his great name be blessed, God shakes God's head and says, happy is the king who is thus praised in God's house. Right? God says, this is great. I'm loving this. This is working for me. Okay? I'm happy when you praise me in this way. But how does the text end? Woe to the father who had to banish his children, and woe to the children who had to be banished from the table of their father. So what you see here is a world in which God is remembering a time in which God's presence was more manifest on earth, and at the same time mourning the current state of affairs. Woe is me, oi li, oi lo la'av, woe to the father, and oi lo to the banim, and oi lo to the children, woe to the children, who had to be banished from the table of their father. That is to say, it's not just us who are saying, woe is us. God is also saying, woe is me. In all the manuscripts, it says, bear to imagine God saying, oi, about God's self. But God was. God was saying, oi, oi, la, la, means, woe is me. So it's not just that the Kaddish is a prayer asking for a better time, as opposed to a praise of God, that's marionetting a world that I can't understand. It's a, it's a request for a better time. But strikingly, we're not the only ones making the request. God also is suffering, and God also wants that world to arrive. May I be made great. 
and may I be, may I make myself great, may I make myself holy, okay? So again, what I'm trying to do in the second, if the first part of this was building a statement of the Kaddish is a stand-in for a life to be lived, not just a liturgical recitation, this is a request, right? May you be made great, may you be made holy, you're not fully great right now, it's not the end of time, I want that time to come. And the story of Rabbi Yossi, where God is saying, woe is me. We're not alone in our mourning. God is also there. So again, we have some practices from the Middle Ages of what one says when one cannot say the Kaddish in a minion. And that might help guide us to figure out what is it that we are able to focus on when we also can't say Kaddish in the way that we're used to. Okay, what I want to do in the last part here is just look at uh, so a couple of, of modern sources, modern meaning in the last few hundred years, um, that also tried to take the Kaddish out of its zero-sum liturgical recitation game. It's not you say it and it counts, or you don't say it and it doesn't count. There's some other things at stake and at play here. Kitzur Shulchan a couple hundred years ago, even though saying Kaddish, nevertheless, Mikomakom ein elu ha'ikar. They are not the essence. That's not the, the main thing of what it means to be a mourner. Rather, the essence is that the children should act in a righteous manner. For in that way, they benefit their ancestors. That's the real message, says the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. And a person should command his children to perform a certain mitzvah. And if they fulfill that mitzvah, it's considered more worthy than the Kaddish. This, I think, is a fascinating statement in which the Kaddish is a recitation that is almost sort of generic. And in that uh, generic form, it's very powerful because everyone's saying it. But there's also a specific relationship that we have with our loved ones. And while they are alive, can we learn from them what mitzvah do they love? Right? What's the mitzvah that you want someone to know that you want them to do specially when we, when we are all gone? And that is even more considered, more worthy than saying Kaddish itself. That is to say, what would it look like to personalize the morning recitation, as it were, where there's a specific mitzvah that I connect to that I know my relative wanted, loved, wanted me to do. And that itself may be another option in our menu of what we can do in this moment when saying Kaddish in a minion that we're used to is not really on the table. I'm gonna give you one, uh, one final um, option here, which is um, from, from Divrei Malkiel, uh, 19th century um, uh, Europe. If he incurs, Eastern Europe, if he incurs a financial loss on saying Kaddish from the Amud, he is, of course, exempt. First of all, just introducing, there's a possibility even of being exempt from saying Kaddish if it causes you certain financial loss. Um, and in the essence of the matter, the masses have thought that the essence is to lead davening and say Kaddish. And there are those who say as many Kaddishes as much as possible, but all they do, all, all day, they do whatever they want. Meaning, you go to shul, you say what, the Kaddish, you say it once, you say it twice, you say morning Kaddish all the time, and then you go off and be a terrible person. I do whatever you want all day long. But that's actually not the point of Kaddish. 
In truth, the essence is to increase Torah and good deeds, right? And keep away from forbidden things. And in this, a child does merit to his parents. So you're explicitly going after the notion of, you know, you think Kaddish is it's zero sum, and if you say it, you can do whatever you want all day long. Now, the real thing is you have to behave in a way all day long that brings honor to the person that you're saying Kaddish for. That is the essence, okay? So the third part of this is just to say that even when you could say Kaddish with a minion, certain rabbinic authorities in, in the last few hundred years were concerned that people were thinking that Kaddish, all Kaddish is, is the entirety of the daily morning practice when really it's about an essential form of commitment to behavior, which might bring us back again to the story that we started with in the Orzarua. It's something that we commit to a life as opposed to we say a certain recitation. So for those of us who are just having such a hard time not being with a minion and not being able to say Kaddish, which is legitimately extremely difficult for so many reasons, I wanted to introduce some other possibilities of what might be on the table. Um, the, the, the last of these being, what would it look like to live a life, even when you could say Kaddish, where Kaddish isn't the main idea? Yes, it's important, but it's not the main idea of what one is supposed to do to honor the dead. Either that is to live in a certain way, fulfilling a mitzvah that you knew was dear to your beloved, or, and living a life where all day long that person is proud of you as opposed to just in the moment when you're getting to say the Kaddish itself, taking the Kaddish away from uh, an all or nothing liturgical recitation and moving it to the possibility um, of a behavior. I'm gonna open up for thoughts and reactions. Daniela says, what, if any, connection is there between the request made in Kaddish for God to rule soon and the historical context of Kaddish having been used to demonstrate honor to one's parents? Yeah, I think there's a deep connection. When the Kaddish becomes a mourner's prayer, to me, it's a natural prayer to put in the mouth of a mourner because a mourner, probably more than anybody, is begging for a world that is different from the world that we live in. The prophecy of Ezekiel, where God says, that is the end of time, right? That is a world where it might even be, Ezekiel brought us the vision of the dry bones. It might even be there's some form of actual resurrection that's being called to mind. But even without that, it's a time that we're not living in now. The world we're living in now is not the world I want to live in forever. So it is the opposite of, what can I do? I have to praise God, even though I'm suffering, which to my mind only started happening in 20th century America, that framing of the Kaddish. No, the older framing, I think, was that, you know what? Things are bad, and I'm going to pray for them to be better. And that's what the Kaddish is doing, okay? So it's, it's really, um, it makes a lot of sense if that's something that we are going to put in the minds, in the mouths of mourners, even though it originally um, was something that was, uh, was said only after a period um, of study. Thank you so much for learning.